0: Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to strengthen your practice through interviews with fellow educators who are exploring new ways to teach languages, revisiting previously held assumptions, and enriching their classroom or school culture. Links and resources mentioned in the episode and a blog about drama-based language teaching can be found at LessonImpossible.com. After three years of learning from all sorts of subject-specific educators, Lesson Impossible is shifting to focus exclusively on language teaching. For non-language teachers, don't worry we will still be exploring issues of classroom and school culture that apply to all disciplines, such as upcoming episodes on gender and education, cognitive science myths, and educational technology. I can't think of better interview subjects to kick off this shift in focus than Florencia and Maris, who literally wrote the book on language teaching. So good luck on your not-so-impossible lesson with Agents Florencia Henshaw, and Maris Hawkins. Maris Florencia, I'm so excited for you to be on the podcast and to share your practice and your amazing new book with me and the listeners. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for the invitation. We are so excited to talk about the book, but we really, really appreciate you making the time to talk to us. Awesome. Well, why don't we start by just having you introduce yourself and what
0: your role in education is.
1: My name is Florencia Henshaw. I am the Director of Advanced Spanish at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and I teach Spanish, so I'm a language educator first and foremost, but I am also a teacher trainer, so I teach the so-called methods course at my institution, so we talk a lot about second language acquisition and pedagogy.
2: My name is Maris Hawkins. I teach upper elementary classes and middle school classes at an independent school in Washington, D.C. And I also, many years ago, started a blog, and so I like to share my practice and what is working in my classroom um, on my blog as well. And links will definitely be in the show notes to the blog.
0: Oh, perfect. So you guys wrote a book. Yeah. Which is very (laughs) exciting. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what was the impetus for writing Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom.
1: So what I would say is it was inspired a lot by by what I was seeing in my so-called methods class. And that is that traditionally the way that I was teaching it was the way that I learned it, which was a survey of methods, a survey of approaches, a summary of research that sometimes seems very contradictory. (laughs) And what I was noticing was that by the end of the course, the students were either confused, and I don't blame them, or skeptical about everything. And, that's the last thing I want my students <laughs> to be at the end of a course. I want them to leave with clarity. I want them to leave informed, empowered, and what I thought was missing in a lot of these textbooks meant for language teachers you know in in preparation courses was clarity on where is the common ground among all of these approaches and theories and research findings. And it's true that we don't know everything about language acquisition. It's true that perhaps people still disagree on some major things. But I feel that if our goal is to help students develop communicative ability in the target language, then We do know some things that are the fundamentals of language development that we need to keep in mind when we create activities, when we develop lessons in our own classrooms. And the other thing that was sorely missing was the application to real-life classrooms. I felt like many of these books stayed too much in the theory, in the ideal, And they didn't provide enough examples for educators to visualize what it looks like in the classroom. And that's why one of the sections in each chapter is called, What does it look like in the classroom? (laughs) And Maris?
2: And I would say um, one big emphasis for me was that in a lot of these textbooks, um, many times it was college professors. And I've been fortunate um, to teach grades from pre-K all the way to 12th grade students just throughout my um, many years of teaching at this point. And many times teacher voice wasn't wasn't honored. And it was also kind of interesting when we would pitch the book having to explain why my voice as a teacher was valid in an industry that a lot of times um, focuses more on professor voices. Um, And so I think it's important because the one thing that I've also seen, too, is that um, I can learn just as much from an elementary school teacher, middle school teacher, college level professor in their classes, just as much as I hope that they can learn from watching one of my classes, as far as pedagogy goes, and there's there's some things that are are universal throughout um, language pedagogy. So also finding that common ground as well. So
0: I, I love the premise of bridging the current research to the classroom, and I something that gets my goat to use a, an English idiom <laughs> is that oftentimes articles can be really dismissive about real world concerns or application. So for example, I read an article recently about incorporating improv into the second language classroom, something I'm very passionate about. And in the section around barriers, one of the barriers identified was classroom management concerns. And the solution was have better classroom management, which, you know, oh, if only someone had told me that, my class would be perfect. So what are some other disconnects that you see between the research and actually being in the classroom?
1: Well, I would say I can give you two examples One of them would be something that is quite common in the research on second language writing, and it's one type of feedback, which is called reformulation. Reformulation has been shown to be so effective and is so theoretically sound. Do you know what reformulation is? Reformulation means that the teacher rewrites the entire paragraph that a student wrote, changing fixing, editing, anything that needs to be changed, fixed, or editing. Well, if you think about it, it's good input, right? And so the students can compare their version with a teacher's version. But who in this world has time to be rewriting every single student's compositions? I don't have time, I don't think Marys has time, I haven't met anybody who has time just yet. And here's the kicker, even the researchers, they hire assistants to rewrite things because they don't have time either. So that's when I go, well, this is lovely for the research, but it will never translate in the classroom. Tell me how this applies to the classroom. Uh, and the other example that I give is something that we talk a little bit about in the book, And that is when scholars or researchers have such strict definitions of important concepts in such a way that now the teachers feel like it could never apply to their classroom. And so, for example, to say that Activities where the students are just being creative, like maybe writing a little skit together, a little play. Maybe they wrote a song. Maybe they, you know, they did something fun, creative, using the language meaningfully. And yet some people will say, well, but wait a minute. That is not a task. That is not real communication. That is not authentic. Right. People throw all these, you know, buzzwords and terms and <laughs> labels Um that follow very strict definitions. And then at the end of the day, I just go, does it matter? Does it really matter? So just because it's not a task or it's not communication according to this one definition, then does that mean that it's bad for my students? This is why in the book, we just go back to what is the content information meaning that is being conveyed and do others see a purpose for it are others engaged in understanding or in conveying this meaning if it's a yes and yes then to me it's two thumbs up (laughs) nothing wrong with it go ahead and do it in your class and I think that sometimes the scholars spend spend so much time you know defining terms so strictly that that doesn't always help educators figure out how that applies to their classroom.
2: And I too, I would see this in my classroom as well. Um, I would give more of a of an authentic I'm using air quotes here <laughs> authentic um, assign writing assignment. and some of my students, it was very motivational for them. And I noticed that one student and and this was level five. so this student had a pretty high proficiency in Spanish and she wouldn't write that much. Um, and then what the one of the second or third, prompts that I gave was a creative writing possibility. And she wrote so much. And so again, like Florencia said, as long as you're following these principles and as long as it's working, like we do want students to output what they're capable of. So if it's giving a creative task, then let's do that and let's and let's make our classes engaging for as many of students as we can. Um, I think you know we would we want to hit all of them, but I think we're also in in the real world where that doesn't always happen, but you know, trying as much as we can to make it engaging and um, having students using the target language.
0: so i've I've heard the quote, and every time I hear it, It's a different amount of time, but something around like educational theory is always fill in the blank 20 or 10 or five years ahead of what's actually happening in the classroom. What are some theories that you find just refuse to leave the education sphere, even though the research is very clearly saying that this is not helpful for second language acquisition?
1: Well, I think that could take three podcast episodes to unpack, but I would probably say just two things. First, some ideas don't have expiration dates. So I don't, I'm not a fan of simply going with the latest, the latest, the latest, the latest, almost to the point of dismissing the value of some things that were proposed decades ago. So some things are still valid. Now, There are some things that perhaps now we know better. We should do differently if, if, if our goal is to develop communicative ability. If your goal is different or you're trying to meet a different goal, that's fine. But if the goal is to promote language development for communicative purposes, then doing something like simply repeating choral repetition or merely filling in the blanks with correct forms over and over and over again, thinking that practice makes perfect. Those are things that SLA researchers and scholars have been saying for quite a while now. That's not quite how it works, right? It's not how you get to develop communicative ability. Now, we're not denying entirely the value of perhaps memorizing some things, but we know that language development is not driven by imitation and repetition, which is what served as the basis for audiolingualism many, many decades ago. And many aspects of audiolingualism are still present today. I still see teachers doing choral repetition. Sometimes I see memorization of dialogues. So all of those things are things that belong to audiolingualism. Thinking that repeating 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 is the way of learning a language um and i wish it were that simple if we could just memorize every possible phrase that could ever come <laughs> at us that we would ever need to say and that's it but it just doesn't work that way we we create with language there's a quote from larson freeman that i love that is about I'm not going to cite it directly. I'm not that good. My memory, see, I, I didn't memorize that. But it's about the fact that language is about creativity. It is not about conformity. And to me, that just really speaks to me. We create with language. We don't simply conform to memorizing something and repeating. And that is, I think, core of my own beliefs for how languages should be taught, too. One
2: um, when concept idea that I see continuing around is these long lists of vocabulary that teachers do. I think a lot of times was led by the textbook, but I think even as teachers, some teachers decide to move away from the textbook, um, many teachers still feel like they need these long lists of texts of vocabulary. And I think there's a couple of things. I mean, um, I think some of it is the fact that um, that's how a lot of other concepts are taught. You know, you have science vocabulary, you have social studies vocabulary, you can just add this on um, as well with the as a second language. And I think, again, that just continues to be too much. Um, and I know when I, I, I taught like this for many years, and I was always so concerned that if I got away from these long lists of vocabulary then my students wouldn't be prepared for the next level. And, after a couple of years, I realized my students weren't remembering half of these words. My student, because a lot of times it would just repeat and or not repeat at all. It would just start into a completely different theme, um, and then there would definitely be some words that I myself had never seen in a level one textbook. And so, if I, as someone who's been speaking Spanish for many years, have never seen these words, why do my students in a first year level need these words. I remember one was a camping unit and I'm not a camper so I didn't talk about <laughs> like a heavy coat and a sleeping bag and things like that. So I think that um, you know that again continues to go around and it's it's not until um, people can kind of pare down the words that they think that students really need to learn and then they'll um, and then they have a more likely of a chance to remember them and acquire them, Although it's still not that easy, but definitely giving, you know, 40 words, 38 words for each unit every month or so is way too many words for students to acquire.
1: And to piggyback on what Maris said, which is related to textbooks... Also how the courses are organized, right? We have these units that many times are disconnected from each other. So it's like, okay, we're done with this topic. Let's move on. And then that's where, you know, the new list comes in and we don't rarely use words that we taught before. But then also with grammar. This idea that every chapter, every unit needs to cover, and I use that word on purpose, needs to cover certain structures. And usually you need to cover new structures with each unit. And um, that is a very linear way of looking at language development, which doesn't match how language development Works right. It would be lovely if we would just move on and say, "Got it. I have acquired present. Let's my, let's acquire past now." Like it's just it doesn't quite move as linearly as um, as that. <laughs> and so I think textbooks and probably grammar translation from many many decades ago have all conditioned us to believe that that's how we should teach languages. We should cover different aspects of language one at a time and moving on and moving on and moving on and it just doesn't work that way. Students are not just going to acquire something because you have covered it and so we need to just start looking at it from a different angle. Again, 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 if our goal is to develop communicative ability in the target language, if your goal is for the learners to know about the language and to become mini linguists, then by all means, keep doing that. But (laughs) if your goals are about the students using the language meaningfully for communication, all three modes, then simply covering one structure at a time doesn't result in this magical cumulative effect of, voila, you have not acquired Spanish. It just doesn't work that way. (laughs) And the other funny thing
2: is, it also ended up with some odd pairings. Like I remember um, the sports unit, you learn stem-changing verbs because play was a stem-changing verb. You could also say to lose, which was also a stem-changing verb. But so was die, and so it was. Oh no! And like you're also learning the verb "I die, you die, we die." Like you know, and and you say, just taking a step back and saying, like, do my students really need to one know this verb in level one, and two use it to talk about it, like
1: in a sports setting? And here comes another quote that I love, and I shared recently on on Twitter. But um, this one I know almost by heart because it's so good, and it says, communication cannot be equated with first learning some vocab, then learning some grammar, and then figuring out what to talk about using the vocab and the grammar. It is that. a wonderful <laughs> quote by Liam Van Patten from 2003, almost two decades ago, is still very much relevant. And I think it's it's important for us to keep it in mind. But that's how textbooks are structured. And we have been conditioned to believe that's how we should structure our lessons. So sometimes... People ditch the textbook, and I get it, but if you're replacing it with essentially about the same, the same type of structure, the same type of approach, then I don't know that you're going to get such a different result, right? Then we're still maybe not teaching for communication.
0: What I love about your book is that it is in the chapters broken down into what do I need to know? So there's the theory. What does it look like in the classroom? So you've got... got examples. And then now that you know, which is reflecting on that learning of the many, many examples in the textbook of what does it look like in the classroom? What's your favorite or favorites?
1: So for me, all of the favorite examples come from chapter six, which is about interaction. And that is because I've always been fascinated by the interpersonal mode and about interacting. And I think that sometimes that's where you can get creative in terms of the types of tasks um, that the students will do and the students can get creative too. So for example, we have one that is the um, a two-way spot, the differences task with menus. And so the menus have some of the differences and the students have to interact to spot the differences between the two menus. We have one where um, one student is the customer and one student is the salesperson um, and they need to interact uh, in a particular way to um, purchase items that they need within a budget. We have uh, decision-making tasks on planning an itinerary for students that are visiting their school. We have visual analysis through picture talk, which I think is really, really cool. Um, And we also have one thing that I do and I love, which is instructor-led interviews. I love talking to my students um, and I get to know things about them and they get to know things about me in a one-on-one setting. And I think that's one of my favorite things uh, whenever I teach a class.
2: And then one of my favorites was having, from the interpretive section of the book, having an infograph and then taking out parts of it and doing one of two ways. Um, Either have students match the symbol with the text that the symbol represents or is referring to. And then the other one is just, you know, leaving gaps of, for example, percentages in an infographic or um, different countries, leaving those names blank and then having students guess as to which one goes where. I would say I have used that, um, I've used that many times since we've talked about it and and written about it. And I've used that from my third grade on the way up to my eighth grade successfully. So it's one of those activities that really spans um, elementary through high school and college. Um, And then one of the other things that I like from the um, chapter on input is doing input bracketing and I like to do that with my students. Can you define input bracketing? Yeah. And so it's it's sort of like in the United States, we have what's called a March Madness Tournament where you have different basketball teams in this case that are, but it can be used in soccer too. Any, a lot of um, sports events have this and you have two teams playing against each other and then, you know, one team loses and then it goes into another match off with the two teams that won and so on and so forth till you're um, whittled down to one favorite team that won everything. So um, I've seen that taken and done with, for example, in my sixth grade, we did breakfast foods when we were talking about our our food unit. Um, But in the book, we talk about planning for a party and using um, these... These, you know, talk about first foods, what type of music to play, what activities to have and things like that and and make it. And then the students can at the end have sort of a planned party that would be their ideal party. So I, I like that so much because it's so easy to stay in the target language as well when you're doing that because it's so visual for students to get. And they get really into it because they really want their favorite item to win.
0: If I were to give you unlimited money, unlimited time, unlimited support, what would be your ideal language class setup and
1: curriculum? Oh, wow. What a question. I would say. uh, well, I mean, if if everything is unlimited, um, I would love for the students to go abroad. <laughs> <laughs> um, if that is uh, if that is a limitation, so it's like okay, we can't quite do that. Okay, um, then I would love for classes to be a little bit more individualized. So I would not have groups of twenty students in one classroom at a given time. I would love to be able to do more one-on-one, small group interaction with other speakers of the language. Um, I would love to focus entirely on what do you want to know? What do you want to communicate? So tailoring the course very much to what is interesting to the students. And I would get rid of grades. (laughs) 100%, no grades at all. And um, I would love to include all sorts of media, you know what I mean? From commercials to fiction to just just a variety of language uses. That's what I can think of right now.
2: Yeah, I think um, overall I'm... Really happy with the, my class sizes that I have. So, between eight and 12 students is pretty ideal. So, I'm, I'm lucky there. I think the other thing, being that I work in um, Washington, D.C., we take a ton of field trips. Um, that's one of the premises of my school. And so, um, for example, I took my students to the Kennedy Center to see Don Quixote Ballet. Um, we went to a Peruvian restaurant after we had studied, um, we had watched some street foods episodes. And so I think a lot of that I would continue. I would probably amplify it a little more because it would be nice, um, every other weekend or week rather to go on a field trip where we don't go that frequently, but that would be amazing to do more of that. And I think, especially for me with some of my younger students, I teach them twice a week, I would love to teach them more. Um, because there is so much um, that we can do. But unfortunately, you know, there's also other specials and things like that. But yeah, I'd say traveling a little bit more traveling a little bit farther than we do would be amazing. Um, and I think the one thing that it Florencia made me think of when she was talking about having such a wide range of um, of media. I think that's the one thing that can be hard with the limitation of time is that sometimes in your mind, this like perfect resource exists and you have it, you know, there and then you can't find it. <laughs> um, and so I think being able like that unlimited time where you really could, you know, just spend hours and hours looking up resources that would be perfect, you know, for your lesson that you had your 12 students on would would also be great. Is there
0: anything that we haven't talked about or that you would really want a language
1: teacher who's going into the classroom on Monday to keep in mind? So the two things that we come back to in the book over and over again is probably what I would say for this question, and that is meaning and purpose. So what information, what content is being conveyed by you, by the students, by the text, whatever, right? So what is the content? And then what will others do with the information? What is the purpose? And for us, the purpose shouldn't be just to practice, right? So it's not just to practice present tense, just to practice talking, just to practice... There should be something else that I need to pay attention to this information for a reason. And of course, if you have the ideal class where everybody's super motivated to pay attention to you because they're fascinated by what you're saying, fantastic. But otherwise, then you have to think about what purpose you're going to give them, what reason you're going to give them to be engaged meaningfully with the language.
0: Well, Maris Florencia, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with me and the listeners. And I know that your teacher educator students and your Spanish students are very lucky to have you thinking so, so wonderfully on this topic.
1: Thank you so much. And yes, buy a copy of our book. Can I be like shamelessly plugging it again and again? Please. please Please. buy a copy of her book follow Maris uh on Facebook and in her blog and then subscribe to my YouTube channel while you're at it I'm packing language pedagogy woo! (laughs) (laughs) and there'll be links uh through the link in the show notes
0: to all of what
1: you've talked about including a link to buy the book wonderful thank you so much this was so much fun
0: This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. You can find out more about the podcast or check out the blog at lessthanimpossible.com as well as find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can contact us with suggestions for future episode topics. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. Lesson Impossible is proud to be one of the many amazing school rubric podcasts.